study, uh, and we haven't started to study what we were going to study, so we had to find this in-between thing. And so uh, we were talking about what we should teach, and Dan said, Orlando, why don't you teach whatever you feel like teaching? I'm like, oh, that's a large... What do I feel like teaching? And so I thought we'd do something a little, uh, it's still kind of in that vein of Advent season, and maybe it's something that we don't get a chance to talk about very often, or at least to spend this amount of time talking about it. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to probably everybody's favorite passage, and that would be uh, Matthew chapter 1. And here's what I'm going to do. We're actually going to read through and talk and study through the genealogy of Jesus. And it's a list of a bunch of names, I know. Um, but we are, we're going to walk through it a little bit. I think there, if we really take the time to study, there's a reason God puts all of these things in the Bible. Uh, not not a, a dot of an I, not a cross of a T is there by accident. God is sovereign and in control. And so he puts these genealogies there. We can find one in Matthew chapter 1. We can also find another genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3. And I think, and I bet, I bet, uh, you and I, for the most part, just kind of race through the genealogy without even thinking. But... I really do believe there's a wealth of lessons that we can learn from the, from the genealogy of Jesus. So here's what we're going to do. I have the ESV, so I'm going to read it out of the ESV. Um, and I like to usually read out of two or three versions. So we're going to have two... No, I'm just kidding. It's all names, right? It's all names. It's a, it doesn't matter if it's ESV. And I'm even going to give you all a pass. I'm going to read it this time because it's a bunch of names so that... I'm just going to read it and pretend like even if I don't know how to pronounce the name, that I'm pronouncing it right, and y'all will never know the difference, and no one will ever have to struggle. So let's just go. We're going to go Matthew chapter 1, um, verses 1 through 17. <clears throat> the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father, father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nation, uh, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Ruth, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. <gasps> and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. <sighs> 
And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of uh, Shetel, and Shetel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of uh, Abud, and Abud the father of uh, Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of uh, Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. I bet you that's just riveting reading, like riveting all day long. And then it finishes, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon were 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. So just real quick, right off the top, right off the top, you do see those four sections, those three sections rather. It, it basically gives um, genealogy from uh, Abraham uh, to David, and then gives genealogy from David to the exile, and then gives genealogy from the exile to the time of Christ. But I really do, I want you to understand that there's, like I said, there's a wealth of information here, and that's what I'd like to walk through this morning, a few lessons that we learn. Here's the very first lesson that we learn. I like the way it very, it starts, it starts off, uh, this is the genealogy of Jesus, right? And it, tell, it tells a little bit about his most prominent ancestors right there in, in verse 1. Who are his most prominent ancestors? Okay, his most prominent ancestors are David and Abraham. And I want you to understand something. I want you to, who, do you know who Matthew's writing to? Matthew's writing to the Jews. Matthew, uh, that's why a lot of times as we read the book of Matthew, something will happen. Jesus will do something or say something or, or, or there'll be an event and Matthew puts in there, this was to fulfill what was written by the prophet so and so. And so Matthew's really collecting for the Jews the evidence that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Because Jews know that the Messiah has to fulfill certain prophecies. And if he, if he fails in fulfilling even one of those prophecies, guess what? He's not the Messiah. And so Matthew starts his book off with a bang. It might not feel like a bang for us, but for the Jews, guess what? It was some hard-hitting material. One, because Jews are all about genealogies. They're probably some of the best genealogy keepers in the world, and they can trace their lineage back. But it starts with a bang for them because it's a genealogy, and for Jews, it really is riveting stuff. But more than that, it begins to make the case that Jesus is the Messiah because it starts off with the fact that he comes from David and Abraham. And these are the two people from whom the Messiah was going to come. Specifically, David. Right? And so, as we look at this, I want you to understand what Matthew's doing that we maybe don't appreciate. Matthew is starting off by proving the claims that this one Jesus has the qualifications to be 
the Messiah. And he has the qualifications from birth to be the Messiah. And interestingly enough, he has the qualifications even from before birth. And this will be a sign to you. A what? A virgin will give birth to a son. Right? He's going to be the one to say, even from before he was born, and we will read a little, you could read a little bit about that, he's already got the qualifications to be the Messiah. So here's why, here's why I think that's important. If you're going to trust your salvation uh, to someone, you had better know the credentials of that person, right? Like, my friend Danny Byers is here, great dear friend, and I was with him uh, looking, we, looking at a house that he's wiring. He's a master electrician uh, and uh, an amazing electrician. Orlando Lopez is not an amazing electrician, right? Uh, I, to be honest with you, there have been a couple, like Danny has helped me install light switches. I know what you're thinking. Light switches are easy to install, but I've had to had, ask Danny's help on, like, on a light switch. Um, so if you need your house wired and you got to choose whether you could call Orlando Lopez or Danny Byers, who are you going to choose? You're going to choose the one who has all the right qualifications. Danny's going to get a phone call. Or you're going to call Orlando and say, Hey, Orlando, what's Danny Byer's number? Right? Because you're not going to come to me because I don't meet the qualifications. And just from the very beginning, if Jesus doesn't meet the qualifications of what it means to be the Messiah, I'm not going to put my life, my eternity, my hope in his hands because if he is not who... If he doesn't meet the qualifications, then guess what? He's anyone just like you and just like me. Uh, Mind you, he's an amazing somebody, right? He's like, if, if he's not the Messiah and he misses out even on one of the prophecies... He's still an amazing person, maybe like like Billy Graham, who is amazing and more amazing than Orlando, but not the Messiah and not the Son of God. Do you kind of understand what's happening here from the very beginning? It's this, hey, we want to make sure that you understand that he is the Messiah and you can put the trust for your salvation in him because his credentials from the very beginning are spot on. We want to make sure that this is, you know, that this is the one who was promised to us. And then, again, Matthew does a great job of this throughout his gospel. And then Matthew just kind of, every time Jesus lists uh, or Jesus does something that fulfills a prophecy, Matthew's like, hey guys, put a check mark next to this one. And a check mark next to this one. And a check mark next to this one. As we read this genealogy, let's remember that Jesus really is the one who he claimed to be. When you think about the prophecies of who the Messiah was supposed to be, take a guess at about, it depends on who's counting, about how many prophecies 
of the Messiah there were about what he'd do. Does anyone know? Does anyone want to take a guess? No, I think it's, well, it might be, but depending on who's count. I've understood it's 300. But that's still a whole lot of things to, that's a, I like checklists, but that's a really big checklist. And out of those about 300 prophecies, guess how many of those Jesus fulfilled? Every single one. And the probability of that happening is astronomical. Jesus is who he says he is. Uh, I, like, I like what 2 Samuel... Someone uh, take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, verses 12 through 16. In case you're wondering, 2 Samuel is right after 1 Samuel. It's a little Bible school trick I learned. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 16. Someone read it for me. Anybody? Uh, yes, ma'am. Okay, so who is this prophecy to? First, who is it to? Who's, who's getting spoken to? David. It's, David is getting spoken to. And this is a prophecy. And what we have to understand sometimes about prophecy is some prophecies have this double fulfillment. It has this fulfillment that's immediate and then a long-range fulfillment, in this case, that would ultimately be totally fulfilled in the Messiah. So he talks about uh, establishing his kingdom and that first initial fulfillment is talking about who? David. David. This is a prophecy to David, but that very next, his lineage is going to keep going. It's going to be through Solomon. And Solomon ultimately is the one who builds the temple and the one who, when, when he, when he uh, sins, I'm going to correct him, right? Because we, that has to be prophecy about Solomon because we know that Jesus Christ never sinned. Right, so that 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 finds its fulfillment in Solomon, but this passage also speaks about establishing that kingdom forever. Did Saul and having one person to reign forever? Did Solomon reign forever? The answer is no. As a matter of fact, it's under Solomon's reign, and and after that, that the kingdom what splits. Right, so there's part of this that you're like, well, that doesn't that didn't even get fulfilled in Solomon. Well, it wasn't supposed to get fulfilled in Solomon. It was supposed to get fulfilled in Jesus, and ultimately, the one who sits on the throne forever and ever, who is of the line of David, as proved in the book of Matthew by the genealogy, is Jesus Christ. So uh, let's move forward. Um, not only is the genealogy there uh, so that we can kind of understand uh, that Jesus is the Messiah, it also, uh, I think, I feel like a gene- this genealogy also points to the sovereignty of God. We use that word because we're Presbyterians or Presbycostals, as the case may be. <laughs> right. We use that word sovereignty a whole lot. 
But do we know what it means? If I were to ask you, what does sovereignty mean? What does it mean? Yes, ma'am. It means you answer to no one but yourself. For example, are my children sovereign? No. Am I sovereign? No, because I answer to my wife, right? It really, if I'm smart, if I'm smart, if I want a good life, like, you know, happy wife, happy life. That's the way it all works out. But there are people who don't have to answer to anybody, right? Um, a sovereign state has to answer to no other state. They do what they want to do for whatever reasons they want to do it in the way they want to do it. And so when we talk about God being sovereign, what we're saying is God doesn't answer to anybody. Uh, my, my, uh, some of my, uh, Texan friends when we were in, in high school and, and afterwards together would, would define sovereignty this way. God is God and you ain't. Like, that's just the way it is. God's God. He does what he wants to. And you're not God. You answer to him. And so the sovereignty of God says God decides exactly what happens. And I really do think that this genealogy ultimately is a picture of the fact that God is God and you ain't. You know why? Because here... um, In this particular genealogy, we see a list of 14 generations, and then a list of 14 generations, and then a list of 14 generations. And if you really think about it, had one of those people decided to make a different decision, move to a different place, or marry a different person, or do something different, guess what happens? That whole genealogy breaks down, literally, by the choice of one person. How do we get these 14, 28, 40, yeah, 42 generations? Uh, if I did the math wrong, that's because I'm a preacher, not a mathematician. How do we get these 42 generations, right? All doing exactly what needs to be done so that the end product is this Messiah who is a descendant of David and a descendant of Abraham. That doesn't just happen by accident. That happens because God is sovereign and in control. He really is. I have three kids and it's hard to get them all going the same direction and on the same page. That's hard. But 14, 14, 14. These all generations, it's just like, here it goes. Here it goes. We can follow that line, and it doesn't deviate or move. And it's not, God didn't look at any one of these things, any one of these people and say, oh, darn it. Messed up on that one. Going to have to start this all over again. And I think, uh, you know what, let's look at what a verse about his sovereignty. Um, Job chapter 42, verse 2, someone can read that. And someone else can read Colossians chapter 1, verse 7. Job 42, 2, and Colossians 1, 7. I love that. Job tells God, I know you can do anything you want to, and when you've got a purpose and a plan, that's what's going to happen. And I think sometimes we give ourselves too much credit. Because there have been moments in my life when I thought, darn it, I think I've messed up what God has for me. And God sits in heaven and laughs at me. Because I can't thwart his plan. 
Because I'm not sovereign. He's the one in control of all things. Um, Colossians chapter, what did I say? 1 verse 7. I love that verse. He's before all things. Like nothing happens until he happens. And in him all things consist. Uh, uh, There's another version that might say, and in him all things are held together. Love that. This genealogy holds together, not by accident, but ultimately because God is sovereign. And he guides the footsteps of men. I love that. My life isn't an accident. My life has purpose and is falling in step with the plan of God. And I see that in the genealogy of Christ, because ultimately God is sovereign. And not only is is he sovereign, I think in that same vein, his timing is perfect. Like, guess when the Messiah was born? Just when the Messiah needed to be born. Like, it didn't happen before. Right? It could have happened thousands of years earlier when methods of writing and history keeping were way more primitive and we might not have gotten the message. No, no, no. It happens exactly when it Because God is sovereign and God's timing is perfect. Perfect. And I love that. E- even, even the world, if you really think about it, even the world into which Christ the Son of God is deposited, doesn't seem like a perfect world, but it's perfect for the purposes of God. The Jews are being downtrodden by the Romans. They're wanting deliverance. They're wanting someone to save them. They're ready to hear this message of the Messiah, God's chosen one. They think He's coming to deliver them from the Romans. Because it's the perfect timing to do that. And what they don't understand, they don't understand. He's coming for something even greater than that. And God's timing is perfect. I like, I like this verse. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 8. And then leave your, whoever reads that for me, leave your finger there. Uh, because in a second we're going to read verse 9. So 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 8. I like that. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. In other words, God's timing isn't my timing, which is great, because if it were my timing, it'd probably get messed up. If it was my wife's timing, it might be a little bit late, but whatever. That's just, you know, we, our timing is, is imperfect, and his timing is perfect. With him, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And it reminds me of a story. Uh, a man speaks with God, and he's like, God, I have a question. And God's like, yes, son. He's like, like if I thought of a billion dollars, what would that be like to you? And God looks at the man and says, that would probably be, for me, like a penny. Hmm. And if I thought of a, a thousand years, what would that be like to you, God? And God says, that would be to me like a day. Hmm. 
So the man looks at God and says, God, will you give me a penny? <laughs> and God looks at him and says, sure, tomorrow. <laughs> right? God's timing is perfect. God's timing is amazing. Uh, he knows the best time for everything. For everything. I look at my life sometimes, and I think, why didn't this happen sooner? And ultimately, my hope and confidence is in, it didn't happen sooner because God is sovereign and in control, and His timing's perfect. I really do look at my life, and I, I think I'm 45, working on a master's degree. Might not be done till I'm 50. God, why didn't you do this when I was a whole lot younger? And then I'm reminded, because I'm in control, and my timing's perfect. Darn it, you're right. And there's, that, there's a very next verse to that also. Uh, who read that? Ms. Shani, read the very next verse. This is the, not only is it about proving the Messiahship of Jesus, this genealogy, or showing the sovereignty of God, or that his timing is perfect, I think the genealogy is also a reminder that God is a keeper of his promises. God, read that one his promises, as some count slowness. Uh, this puts together the two ideas of God's perfect timing and his ability to stay true to his word. I love, I love the verse that talks about um, all of his promises being yes and amen. Like if he promised it, guess what? He's going to fulfill. He made lots of promises. He made promises to Abraham. He made promises to David. He made promises to the people of Israel. And as we look through the genealogy of Jesus, we realize that he fulfilled those promises. God makes us promises. And sometimes we look and we think, well, he hadn't done what he promised. Well, he's not done then. He's not done. Because he will always, always, always do exactly what he said he would do. Because that's who he is. Uh, so we'll jump forward a little bit. There's a few names in this list um, that are surprising. A few names in this list that are um, you wouldn't expect. Um, for example, you might not expect uh, the name Rahab to be uh, in the genealogy of Jesus. And if it's, and I don't remember if it's in, I didn't read both uh, genealogies this morning. I don't remember if it's in this one or the one in Luke. But we see Rahab. What do we know about Rahab? She's a prostitute. Most of us, if we were writing a genealogy and came across a prostitute, we might want to leave that fact out. Right? Uh, but That's another one. Another, so we have Rahab, uh, the prostitute. We have Bathsheba. Typically, women aren't even included in genealogies, right? Jewish genealogy, it's typically male-driven. But here, I believe there's a reason for all this. We include Rahab the prostitute, and we include Bathsheba. But not by name. It talks about her being the wife 
of your what what can you tell me about Bathsheba? She was Uriah's wife. I heard that. She was an adulteress. Whoo, it's getting a little warm in here. A prostitute and an adulteress. That's pretty scandalous. And Tamar, tell me a little bit about Tamar. Does anyone remember? She seduced her father-in-law by pretending to be a temple prostitute. Then she blackmails him. Wow. I thought my family tree was a little crazy. There's also someone else. Uh, there's, it, it, maybe she's not scandalous, but there's also Ruth. What can you tell me about? Why would it be scandalous? A little bit scandalous. She's, she's an outsider. She's not a Jew. She's a Moab. Mo, she's from Moab. Oh, my goodness. She's, not, she's a Gentile. Someone else was going to say something. I saw. Oh, but I just said she was faithful. She was very faithful, but she was. She looked different and spoke different. Oh my God! She's what? She did sleep at his feet before they were married. Nowadays, that's not a big deal, right? But then it was huge. Why? Why include these names in the genealogy of Jesus? Because he used ordinary people. He used one ordinary people. Like, you don't have to be extraordinary for God to use you. There's a, uh, there's a hymn in Spanish. I don't, it might be in English too, I just don't know it. Um, it's called Bria en el Sitio. Bria en el Sitio, donde estés. Bria en el Sitio, donde estés. Puedes con tu luz a un perdido rescatar. Bria en el Sitio, donde estés. I'm sure you, all of y'all caught that, right? <laughs> Basically translated, it says, shine in the place where you are. Because maybe with your light, you can rescue a lost soul. You know what? You don't have to be extraordinary. You just have to be available. And I think that's part of the message of the genealogy of Jesus. They weren't extraordinary. They were available. Yes, ma'am. I, I do love, I do love, because Jesus is the biological child of Mary... And if you think of it this way, the adoptive child of Joseph. Like, that's, and if you really do think about it, Mary was ultimately a uh, single mom. She wasn't married yet, and she's pregnant. And so I think there's a whole wealth of significance there. Either way you look at it, he is the, the one promised from the right line. Absolutely. Absolutely. But uh, times, oh man, every time I get here, I think they should give us two hours for Sunday school. <clears throat> but uh, back to that other point, ordinary people. But not only just or, God uses ordinary people, God uses imperfect people. Like, 
a prostitute. Someone who seduced her father-in-law. And an adulteress. That doesn't sound like the typical people that you think of when you think of amazing Bible stories. But here they are in the genealogy of Jesus. And we're reminded, we're reminded of several things. I think we're reminded that we're a sinful, broken people. But I think we're reminded that even though we're a sinful, broken people, God can still use us. One of my favorite verses, John 3.16. We all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the message of the genealogy. God loves the world. It doesn't matter if you think you're special or not special. It doesn't matter if you're broken or not broken. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. God loves who? The world. I love that verse, but I can only quote it in the King James because that's where I learned it. I can't do like the NIV. It's either King James or Spanish Reina Valera. Those are the two. When I read it in ESV, I stumble over the words because I I keep forgetting. Um, Because I'm just used to it one way. Um, We're going to finish with this quick thought because like I said, uh, time's just kind of slipping away. But this last quick thought is the genealogy of Jesus actually shows us the humility of Christ. Who is Christ apart and above and beyond his genealogy? God. God. And here's God. And again, I love the way Eugene, part of my very favorite uh, Words out of the message. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it. God puts on flesh and blood and moves into the neighborhood. He gave it up. He gave. We're not. We're not going to read it just because of time. But you can go to Philippians chapter two, verses five through eight. He 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 sets aside. All his divine attributes. He doesn't cease to be God. But he sets aside all these divine attributes. And is born. Flesh and blood human. A servant. He served. I came not to be served. But to serve. Born. He he could have been born in a castle. And laid in the most beautiful bed possible he could have lived the life of a king because he was king but he comes in the form he could have come already boom human form just appear out of the desert fully man adult and not have to go through puberty he could have done that but He didn't. He was born a baby. And the thing about babies is they are entirely helpless. For a time, the God of the universe chose to be entirely helpless. To have someone else feed him and change him and blow his nose 
and to live life just like you and me. You know why? Because he loved us. He chose to suffer all the temptations that we suffer, yet live wholly without sin. You know why? Because he loved us. So the next time you read through the genealogy of Jesus, which will probably not be until next year, Christmas time, I want you to remember, it's a reminder of the fact that he's Messiah, that he is sovereign, that he is, his timing is perfect, that he's a keeper of his promises. It's a reminder that he loves the entire world. It's a moment where he shows his great humility out of his great love for humanity. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness and your faithfulness. Thank you for your word that is amazing even when it just seems to be a list of names. Thank you. We give you praise. I ask that as we would continue throughout this day and the coming days, that we would remember the real reason for the season. That's the fact that the God of the universe put on flesh and blood and came to dwell as man so that he might take our place on a cross so that we could find forgiveness of our sins. And for that, we are grateful. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.